Leadership is really complicated these days. So much has changed in terms of the demands on leaders and the responsibilities for working in new ways. And today we're going to talk with Google's former head of people operations about his take on the relationships between leaders and employees and how those can get better one nudge at a time. Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm with our producer, Rebecca Charbowski. Hi, Chris. Chris, you mentioned our guest today who used to lead Google's people operations. His name is Laszlo Bach. Laszlo is the author of a book called Work Rules, Insights from Inside Google that will transform how you live and lead. Laszlo also co-founded Humu. It's a company designed to help managers create better routines and habits at scale. So Laszlo's going to give us kind of an inside track on Humu's research into hybrid work and help us with tips on how to go from insight to action. After hearing from Laszlo, I'll be joined by Isabel Medellin, who focuses on talent attraction and retention for Steelcase. She also works on leading our DEI efforts, and she collaborates with Humu to help develop leaders here at Steelcase. If you like this podcast, we'd really appreciate if you would rate and review it. That helps others to find it. Thanks for joining us at Work Better, Laszlo. Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Laszlo, for people who, they may know you from your Google years, but in case they don't, could you just give us kind of a quick, who are you, and tell us a little bit about Humu, the company that you co-founded, and why you decided to start that? Sure. Well, I spent almost 11 years running people at Google. And one of the things that was the hardest to do, and it was a little easier when it was a few thousand people, much, much Mm -hmm. harder once we had 70,000 plus people, was actually to get everyone to change, to become better managers, to be healthier, to be more constructive, to build a better culture. And one of the things we realized was that there's a lot of traditional mechanisms to do that. But often small gestures, small actions done kind of in the moment make the hugest difference. So for example, Mm -hmm. if you want your people to sort of learn and grow better, yeah, you can send them to training. But one of the best things you can do is after a meeting, just ask somebody, how do you think it went? Mm -hmm. And have that conversation. And so in 2016, I left Google and the next year founded this company called Humu. And what Humu does is we use software and science to bridge what we call the insight to action gap. The knowing doing gap. The knowing doing gap. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you generally know what you want to do, where you want to go, whether it's from an employee survey or whether it's a strategy you have or a cultural shift. It's very, very hard to actually get human beings to transform, to grow, to change behavior. And so we use small nudges, little tiny interventions sent to groups of people at once. So mm-hmm. a manager nudge is different from an employee nudge is different from an executive nudge, but all aligned to get people to change. And we found It actually has a huge impact, not just on productivity and retention, but actually it makes people happier too. So it's been, Mm -hmm. it's been a pretty satisfying last five years or so, six years, I should say. I'm really interested in talking with you today because you kind of have this front row seat to human beings at work right now. and, And I think we're all kind of trying to figure it out. And, you know, a lot of data that, you know, is out there 
data that we're finding in our research is telling us that people are really struggling. I mean, we've seen in the U.S., I think, it, you know, some of the first drops in productivity that we've seen in decades. And, and even our data would say that people themselves are self-reporting that their productivity is a little shaky along with other metrics like um, engagement levels and uh, feeling a sense of work-life balance, et cetera. And of course, the worrisome thing that always goes along with all of that, if that weren't enough to worry about, is like people starting to say, hey, I'm, I'm maybe more likely to leave my position than what I was previously. So given all of the research that you do at Humu, I'm curious kind of what you're seeing in terms of where things stand right now. Well, all of those things and it's worse. So oh, uh, yikes! There been, there's certainly been productivity declines. When you look at aggregate productivity in the United States, for example, it looks like it's been sort of pretty flat through the pandemic. When you adjust that, except for recently where it's dipped, but when you adjust that for hours worked, productivity per hour has gone down tremendously. So the fact that people early in the pandemic were working longer hours because suddenly you're at home, you're working all the time, uh, it spills over into dinner, evening, family time, weekends, it actually masks the fact that productivity per hour of work has dropped quite a bit. And as you said, add to that historic lows in employee engagement, add to that uh, increasing rates of managers turning over, add to that increasing uh, elderly, older workers leaving the workforce. It's, it's a pretty bad situation. Um, and what we've actually found, though, is that part of what's missing is the sense of human connection, this sense of people being together. Um, at the end of the day, the pandemic's been a pretty lonely, isolating experience yes. compared to what it was like actually being together. So we've, we've done a lot of work ass assessing that, analyzing it, and trying to figure out how to help. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about that. It feels a little bleak, but, uh, you know, I hope there's hope on the horizon. But so let's talk a little bit about hybrid work, because now that's been a transition. You know, during the pandemic, people who could be home were mostly at home. And now we've entered into this era that is kind of settling in in terms of the patterns where uh, people are working from home or from the office. And uh, needless to say, that's been embraced in very different ways by different companies. Uh, but different parts of the world, we see remote work being much more prevalent uh, in some cultures than in others. And I, I'm just curious about hybrid work in general. Like, how do you think that's starting to shape our work relationships? So what we found in our research, and, and when I talk about research, it's typically randomized controlled trials. It's not just we do a survey and ask people, we sort of look at companies and take a population and run two very different conditions, status quo, kind of business as usual, and then an experimental condition where you have hybrid work or you know, other things changing. And then we monitor over time to kind of figure out what's going on. So, so the standard is for us, how would an academic researcher approach it? Not would a, how would some, you know, a tech company or a consultant approach it? And what we found are two things that are quite striking. One is that hybrid work can actually be great for people mm -hmm. and that the ideal amount of hybrid work is one and a half to two days per week from home and three, three and a half days in the office. And that's ideal from a perspective of productivity, certainly, but also making people feel happier mm -hmm. because it's the right balance between heads down time, get things done at home, time to go take care of errands, things like that, plus the social connection at the company. So if Point one is one and a half to two days per week from home seems to be ideal for human beings. 
Mm-hmm. The second thing we found that's significant is that the thing that makes it work, and at a lot of companies, hybrid is not working, but the thing that makes it work is human connection. Mm-hmm. And psychologists talk about three types of social distance and social connection. Physical distance, which is, am I around you? Are, are we together? That's obvious. Right. The second is operational distance and connection, which is, you know, if you're remote, can I see you? Can we interrupt each other? Can we speak naturally? The third is affective distance. And affective distance is emotional connection. And Humu does a lot of work in our software here, but the, the key thing around affective distance is when you're physically together, it happens naturally. It shows up in body language. It shows up before and after meetings. Right. When you're remote, it's artificial. And so to make mm-hmm. hybrid work, the second significant thing we found is you really need to invest in having people emotionally connect to one another, to their work, and to the company. You know, it, it feels like you're describing my life a lot because, you know, I'm working in office pretty much four days a week. We have a pretty easy commute here, so I don't have the same challenge that maybe people in in other parts of the world or country have. But, and and that feels pretty good, you know, like I feel like I get a lot of time with my team, but yet I, I really appreciate kind of my Fridays are my work from home days where I can you know, do some more heads down and kind of focus on things. But also what you're saying about the connection physically, it's just so much easier, you know? And and I think that was one of the things I missed during the pandemic so much is people that I enjoyed those kind of casual conversations with or those run into you in the hallway kind of conversations, like those didn't happen as much when everything had to be scheduled virtually. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are in terms of how do we help people cultivate that, you know, the the relationships that you're talking about when they aren't together physically and that just happens easily. Yeah, the, the research on that is fascinating, that when you're not together physically, it's very isolating and lonely because we're social animals. We're designed to mm-hmm. just be around other people, even for people who are deep, deep introverts. It's important to actually once in a while just be around human beings. and connecting through the interface of a screen is actually exhausting. It's it's tiring in ways that even just a voice conversation, a, a phone call or not, because for mm. example, we subconsciously, when we're on screen, check our own image more often. So part of our mental capacity is consumed by this cognitive load of checking on ourselves. Yeah. We keep eye contact more than we normally would. It's exhausting to keep staring yeah. at people's eyes, but when you're on a screen, we kind of feel compelled to look at one another. Yeah. And so there's all these small things that make it more tiring. So a couple examples of things you can do if you're fully remote or working remotely to bridge that connection is number one, set a norm where it's okay to turn your screens off sometimes. Mm. Now, the management fear of that is, well, people are going to be slacking off, they're playing video games, they're on their phones. So don't do it every single time and don't let the same people do it again and again, but just say every third meeting, we're just going to have screens off so people can just focus on the conversation. Uh Uh, Another example is to actually budget in the meeting, social time up front and at the end. Mm, Be very intentional about that. Absolutely. We we would have with our leadership team meetings, we'd start each meeting with a question and it would rotate who would come up with the question and everyone would go around and answer it. And the questions would be things like, what's your favorite ice cream? Mm -hmm. Or what was a formative moment growing up? Or did you do anything fun this weekend? And the idea was just to get people to sort of simulate that social interaction you would have bumping into people in the hallways. And it would consume time. You know, in an hour-long meeting, we take five or 10 minutes, but mm-hmm. we budgeted for it. And it helped us feel 
more connected to one another. So you need to very deliberately do those things in order to maintain that human connection. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to ask a little bit, you know, I'm familiar with Humu uh, because I get nudges from Humu, and we're going to talk about nudges in a minute. But um, just in general, as a leader in an organization, it feels like it's a hard time to be a leader, really, in an organization, because I feel like on one hand, we're being asked to achieve, you know, higher results, better profitability, better sales, you name it. And at the same time, we're being asked to help have these deeper human connections with people. And, you know, I'm curious what you guys are seeing as you're interacting with different leaders. Like, what do you feel leaders are worried about or what's keeping them up at night, do you think? There's three things that, whether we're talking to CEOs or director level folks or or even frontline managers that we're hearing again and again are challenges for them. One is how to help managers get better. Managers are in this really difficult spot today, kind of caught between the business results their their bosses are looking for and the emotional needs and development needs of the people on their team. So it's tough for managers. How do we make them better? And there's probably no company on this planet that if you say, how are your managers doing? We'll say, perfect. They're fine. <laughs> They're, you know, no room for improvement. Right, right. It's been very difficult for managers. I'm yes. happy to talk more about that. The second is knitting together cultures in this hybrid work world. What happened is for a lot of companies, anywhere between 20 and you know, sometimes 50, 60% of their employees have been hired during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So they haven't had the full experience of what it's like to be a part of this organization, this institution. They haven't had a chance to observe things like, for example, is it a culture where after meeting everyone cleans up their coffee cups and straightens the you know the pens on the table and pushes the chairs back in or is it a meeting where someone else is going to take care of that mm-hmm. and a culture where that's someone else's responsibility where you have much more hierarchy and kind of top down command control mm-hmm. structures can't observe that over a screen and so the second big area is we know what our culture was we want to get back to that we want to keep people connected and the third is more broadly um, where we started this conversation which is Business is under pressure. Mm-hmm. We need to grow. We need to transform. We need to become more digital, more agile, what have you. Can your technology help us do all those things? Because again, this is where we started this sort of the knowing doing gap or the insight to action gap. We know where we want to go, but it's harder to get people there in hybrid than it was when everyone was seated shoulder to shoulder and rowing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about those nudges I mentioned. So this is something that you guys have really kind of spent a lot of time thinking about in terms of how that can help us as managers or leaders within an organization. So can you just talk a little bit about kind of the science behind the nudge? Sure. The The science is my favorite part because okay. uh, it's very easy to these days to build technology, mm-hmm. but it's also very easy to do harm and it's very easy to put out technology that that doesn't actually have an impact. So I kind of deeply believe, and the company has found out this notion that you start with science. And so the idea of nudging started with two professors, Dick Thaler at the University of Chicago and mm-hmm. Cass Sunstein at Harvard. Uh, and Dick's a behavioral economist and Cass is a policy expert and economist. And Dick actually won the Nobel Prize a few years ago in economics for his work in particularly this area. Right. But their insight was, are there ways to architect the environment, either physically laying things out or by reminding people, what have you, that 
nudge them to make a better decision. Mm -hmm. And what was critical in their work was it wasn't about forcing people or commanding. It was about how do you make it easier to make the decision you would make on your best day? So I'll, I'll give you an example of a nudge from my Google days uh, that, that might be relatable to everyone. So at Google, famously, there's food everywhere. Um, right. And you know, both at Google and at home and in our lives, we like candy, we like the sweet stuff, we know we should mm -hmm. eat less. So one of the things we did at Google was we had these things called micro kitchens where we have snacks available to everyone in the company and it's you know, M&Ms and peanut butter cups and also apples and oranges and things mm -hmm. like that. You have sugary soft drinks, you have bottles of water, you have diet soda. And in our New York office, we decided, can we nudge people to be a little healthier without pissing them off? Mm -hmm. So we took the sugary snacks and we put them in opaque containers. So instead of clear containers where you can see the ah. shiny M&Ms, yeah, it would just be opaque and it would say M&Ms on it. And the dried fruit, you could still see. The apples, you could still see. Interesting. We took the sugary soft drinks and put them in the bottom of the refrigerator uh -huh. and frosted the glass. They're still there, but... You have to look for them. And we right. put the water and the, the diet drinks higher up. And over a period of about eight weeks in the New York office, people, as a result of this tiny change, just making it a little easier to make a healthy decision, they consume 3.1 million fewer calories. Wow. <laughs> Almost 900 pounds of fat that people did not gain over this period. And so... What we then did was we, we took this idea and kind of ran with it on the humu front. And the one great illustration is um, if, you, if you wanna be uh, more innovative or inclusive, what the science tells us is you need high psychological safety. This is Amy Edmondson's mm -hmm. fantastic work on psychological safety. So how do you do that? You can't just tell a bad boss and be safe, like be nicer to people because <laughs> a bad boss by definition doesn't care. They're not gonna pay attention. But what we do at Humu, for example, is we would send a series of nudges. So we might send a junior person a note saying, your team's working on being more innovative. For that, you need more psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Try speaking up in the first 10 minutes of your meetings this week. Because if you've ever tried this, it's way easier to say something early in a meeting than late. Mm -hmm. Like late in the meeting, you got to be brilliant, right? Early in the meeting, you can just say like, oh, well, it's scale or, you know, basically any question. People will, will put you on the board and then it's easier to participate. But because too many change efforts fail because you ask one person to try to change, we would also nudge other people in that meeting saying, if someone's quiet, ask them what they think. And then we would nudge the senior person, the bad manager, to ask questions, not give answers. And then we check, how did that go? Did it help? If it's a little better, then you get a more sophisticated nudge next time. And what we found is you can make teams 8 to 10% more productive. You can improve retention 5 to 20 points. Uh, but just as importantly, you can actually make people feel like their environments are more inclusive. Mm -hmm. You can make people feel like their managers are 30 to 50% better mm -hmm. with just these tiny, tiny little nudges, these reminders um, of small steps you can take that compound and have a huge positive impact. Yeah. It, you know, it's so interesting. I love the story about the M&Ms, uh, which is a great thing just to remember at home. You know, when I, I think about like our physical experience here when we come into the workplace, we kind of have a nudge because we wanted people to interact more socially. We want to build a sense of community at work. And so like the first thing you see when you walk in the door is not this pristine lobby, but you see a coffee bar and you see little kind of social gathering areas where people are always there. So when you come in, you get this permission, you know, like, 
grab a cup of coffee, sit and talk to somebody. And it, you know, so it's another form of kind of how our environment can help nudge us in those directions that we want to go. So. Well, and to your point, the physical architecture plays a huge role in this, right? I mean, think about, you know, a few, when my, when I started my career, having towering cubicle walls was kind of in vogue and you wouldn't see the people around you and you'd be heads down at work, which on the one hand, it's great because you can just get your work done. But the message it sends is you're isolated. Yeah. You know, you're not a member of a team. You've just got your thing to do. Um, and the trend that, that your firm has been a big part of about opening space up and being intentional about design is incredibly transformative because it's not just creating the conditions where people might interact, but when your company does that, it's also giving people permission to engage with one another emotionally and socially. Right. And today, if you're only going to be in the office 40 or 60% as much as you used to, that permission from the company, that cultural shift is way more important than it was you know, three years ago. So I want to talk a little bit more about the office, but before we go there, I, I want to just tease out the nudge thing a little bit more. Um, so this is one that I received fairly recently. So maybe you can just give me kind of your take on like how that might change my, my management behavior, which is one of them was to plan for a team retrospective. So tell me a little bit about that. Like if I got that nudge, what is that What's that about? How is that meant to impact my leadership style? Well, so first of all, the reason you're getting that nudge is because there's some insight somewhere, whether from your employee survey or from Humu's own analysis or from you know some cultural need that, that your organization has saying that for your particular team, there's a need for either um, perhaps um, more clarity about strategy Mm-hmm. or more transparency or more accountability, mm-hmm. right? So number one, the reason you would get a nudge about plan now for retrospective is because there's an opportunity for the team to be better. The people on your team are saying, we want to know more about what's going on, mm-hmm. or we want to be able to iterate more and improve or get more feedback. Mm-hmm. So there's a basis for why you're getting it. It's not just random. Okay. Uh, and your peers and colleagues will all be getting different nudges based on whatever's most important for their team. So it's customized. The second thing is, on that specific point about planning now for a retrospective, it addresses kind of the issues I'm, I'm getting at. It tells your team that, you know, for example, and I don't know the details of how your team's working out or have access to your data, but uh, it addresses things like, for example, if a team tends to just run, 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 and never take a moment to reflect, to pause, to integrate what's been learned or to improve, it's helpful to put that reminder up front because mm-hmm. it's what social psychologists call pre-commitment. Mm-hmm. You're saying right now that in the future I will take an action, which makes you more likely to take the action. Another issue it could be addressing or opportunity it could be creating is just clarity. Mm-hmm. People wanting to know where are we going. And so if you know you're going to plan for this thing ahead of time, people will know that, okay, this, this actually matters. And the goal needs to be really clear because in six weeks or three months or whatever period, we're going to be looking back to see if the goals were accomplished. So let's have a conversation about goals so we know when we get to this retrospective what we're being measured against. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things that might be underneath that one, but, but principally the idea is this is something your team will benefit from now. And what should be happening is your team members also who report to you will be getting nudges saying, make sure you ask for a retrospective. Make sure mm-hmm. you ask what the goals are so that you by yourself aren't responsible for driving this improvement, but instead everybody is acting in concert. Yeah, uh, this is interesting. Like, Laszlo, I'm feeling like you know too much about me because I'm like, oh, yes, my, 
my team, we run, 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 run. And so it's like, yeah, that was a really good nudge to say, hey, stop a minute and just like, let's talk about what we're learning as we go. Um, so I want to talk more uh, about the conversation that we we're having earlier about the office. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen in, in our data is there's, depending on what country you're in, there's a little bit of a, a tug of war, if you will, about how much time, you know, should be spent in the office. And then like, what's the whole point of the office anyway? And I think that's what I, the question I want to ask you the most, because like in some parts of the world, people are predominantly working in the office, like in China, 95% of the time they're working in the office. Other countries, France has a very high uh, rate of people being in the office. But in, in cultures like uh, the US and Canada, Australia, where they're, they're more individualistic, um, cultures that are more focused on the need of the individual, you know, there's, feels like there's more tension where there's more of that pull toward options for remote working. And then it, it, it just brings me back to like, what job does the office need to do in the middle of, of kind of this uh, shaking out, if you will, of how we're gonna work going forward? So there's definitely cultural differences. And um, I can't remember the name of the researcher, but 70, 80 years ago, there was seminal work done on national cultures. And one of the, they were sort of, categorized by five or six different categories, but one of them was individualistic versus communal. So you're you're hitting a very real phenomenon. Yes. It was um, Geert Hofstede. Hofstede, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to say something controversial and unpopular, um, which is... <laughs> Love it. I think in the more individualistic countries, the dominant conversation is people saying what they want mm -hmm. rather than what they need. Mm. Uh, I mean, mm. speaking for myself personally, I would much rather never have to go into an office again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a nice house. I live in a place with nice weather. I have a dog that I love. I've got kids that are, I'd much rather, you know, I, I work in tech. So, you know, I don't want to have to dress up. I right. want to work in pajamas and all these things. Um, but I can tell you what I felt is lonely. Mm -hmm. Is, is less connected. And in fact, there was fascinating research published last year that in, in the United States, for men, 70% of their social connections are in the workplace. Mm. It's, it's different for women. Women, according to the author, are better at sort of forming social connections outside mm. of that and maintaining it. But for men, it's in the workplace. Right. So there's something that's really, really missing in society, in these individual societies, and just about everybody would prefer to just do their own thing. That's mm -hmm. that's the definition of individualism. Sure. But there's a cost. If you look at rates of depression, if you look at um, rates of, of medical needs, people are sicker. They're psychologically less healthy. Mm. And I'm a little that's far out over my skis right now, but I do think a piece of it is the fact that we actually haven't been together. And it's compounded by what we alluded to before. If you joined a company during the pandemic, you haven't really embedded in the culture. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't feel that different to work for one company versus another compared to how it used to. It used to be that, you know, pick any random set of companies, um, Unilever and Procter and Gamble, mm -hmm. you know, very different, both consumer products companies, different cultures. Different. Mm -hmm. People say now, you know, that's, it's not that different. And so the purpose of the office is number one, to give us what we need, not what we necessarily are seeking, right? We need that community in the office for better or worse is in these countries, a, a third place. It's a place where we connect. 
And then second, um, it's an opportunity for companies to not micromanage, to not control, to not force productivity, but instead to do what it sounds like you've done in your office, give people permission to forge those connections. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it's for. And the work will take care of itself. Um, Adam Grant from uh, yes. Wharton University of Pennsylvania, he's done a lot of work early in his career looking at when people find work meaningful, when they find culture compelling, are they more productive? And on average, they're about 20% more productive when they feel those connections, when they find that meaning. And that's the purpose of the office. I totally agree with you, by the way. I mean, I, I feel like even though, yeah, I, I'm like everybody where it's a lot easier to just throw on sweats, you know, in the morning or only worry about what people are going to see from the waist up, you know. But um, but at the same time, I do feel like when I'm working in that mode, like I, I'm working a lot longer into the evening, you know, if, you know, so I'm, I'm not taking care of like relationships and, and those kinds of needs that I have. So when I just think about your role in terms of coming from, you know, an HR background, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are coming from the HR space and thinking about that. And I, I'm just wondering what guidance you would offer to them, you know, before we let you go, like, how would you suggest that the HR folks would really think about these types of decisions? Because typically, they may not be making some of the decisions about space or about technology or some of those kinds of things. I think um, when it comes to physical space design, and and at Google, we're very, very deliberate about this and, and experimented as you would expect. I think there's three things that you need to think about and make sure you you provide for people. One is people need a personal space. Mm-hmm. So I know Google Cloud just announced they were going to have people hoteling and you know people sharing coming in on different days. Um, Accenture did a similar thing 15 years ago where they said we're going to hotel and you're not going to have a fixed space. It's a mistake. Mm-hmm. People like a place to put their kids' photo. They like having their pen where it was. Nobody likes you know going to a hotel and sleeping in bed that's warm from the prior person. <laughs> oh, I can't get that out of my head now. Right? Yeah, no, you're right. We want our own little tiny space. Uh, it doesn't have to be big. So number one, dedicated space for each person mm-hmm. where it's just their space. Uh, it doesn't have to be big. The second is collaborative space where people can kind of come together and share ideas, debate, and discuss. This could be um, like you're describing your your entry where you have a coffee bar. It could be an atrium that people are forced to cross, but a place where people can kind of compare notes and, and brainstorm and collaborate and be social. And then the third is you need to design the space so that you can have serendipitous encounters mm-hmm. where people can bump into one another. So when 9-11 happened, you know, two decades ago, um, there were a bunch of Google engineers in a cafe complaining about how hard it was to know what's going on. Mm. And because at the time you had to go to CNN.com and, uh, you know, different news channels and someone behind them in line said, well, I could build something that scrapes everything together and surfaces the best news results. And that became the Google news product. And now Mm. every search product has a news feed where you can actually see the most relevant, most important results. But that came about because people happen to bump into one another. Mm-hmm. We'd always put the food near and the bathrooms in the middle of spaces. So people would, and kind of remote from the, the offices. So people would be forced to crisscross right. and cross paths. So those are the things I would think about. Um, dedicated personal space, some collaborative space, and some bait to get people moving across the floor so you can have these serendipitous encounters. You know, ironically, Laszlo, our research showed 
exactly the same thing, like the biggest thing that people want, that they say, I would even come into the office more often, is to have privacy or to have an assigned space. So I think this is an area that leaders are struggling with because they're trying to balance out, well, you know, I've got this real estate that in some situations are, it's sitting empty if people aren't coming in. So why wouldn't I try and reuse that and repurpose it? And why would I assign individual spaces? But, um, you know, you're right that people want to come into the office to collaborate and do this kind of individual work and they need both. Um, it's so interesting that that you're kind of landing in the same space there. So, hey, this has been such a great conversation. I have really enjoyed it, and I wish we could talk for another couple hours, but I just am really thankful that you took the time to be with us today, Laszlo. I appreciate it. It's, uh, your company does amazing work and is so thoughtful about how to connect human beings. Um, it's just, it's, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much. After talking to Laszlo, I really wanted to talk to Isabel Medellin, one of my colleagues here at Steelcase, who's a director of human resources, focused on talent attraction and retention, along with our DEI efforts. So first of all, thank you for that work, because it's really important. But thanks for joining me today, Isabel. Thanks for inviting me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, you know, one of the things that Laszlo talked about that I thought you would have a point of view about is, he talked about how much harder it is to connect with people now that hybrid work is so common, particularly where we're based in North America. But I'm wondering what you think about how that's getting translated to the office. Like what kind of advice are you sharing with teams about how to use the workplace to build trust and connection, you know, those things that can be so hard with hybrid work? I really connected with what Laszlo mentioned about the power of small gestures mm. and actions. Mm -hmm. I think that when we are mindful and consistent with that, we can experience a deeper sense of human connection. Mm -hmm. For example, I, I share with him, you know, exploring what I will call the three C's. Three C's. Communicate, okay. connect, create. Okay. Communicate is about let your team know and others know that you are at the office. Increase your visibility, increase your presence. Connect is about leveraging our amazing space that always invites us to be creative and supports our well-being to expand in, in social connections and expand your network, build strong relationships and build trust. And last but not least, create. That for me is about opportunities to collaborate and innovate together and move from this like directional idea mode when we are mm -hmm. working solo mm -hmm. to intersecting team ideas and innovate mm -hmm. more. Um, and, and I think that when we have inclusion in mind to communicate, connect and create, is when performance, innovation, and growth take another level. And get so much better. That is a really good tip, particularly for me, like the communicate part. Like, I just show up at the office and I hadn't really thought about, like, maybe I should tell people that I'm here, mm -hmm. you know, and say, mm -hmm. and reach out to them for those moments when we need to create something as opposed to, you know, when you, you're right, when you are working from home more, you're 
tending to focus on solo work, mm -hmm. not all the time, but mm -hmm. um, but but those are some really good things to to think about. Um, he also really hit hard on this idea about how to rebuild or recreate culture. And I know how involved you are in our mm -hmm. culture work here at Steelcase, mm -hmm. um, especially as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So do you have some mm -hmm. ideas about that, like in terms of taking kind of a systems mm -hmm. approach to designing culture? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to mention that DEI is not about DEI. It's about culture, about yeah. who we are and, and how we do things. And yeah. we have designed a systems approach by having a global strategy, objectives, mm -hmm. key initiatives, measures of progress and outcomes. And mm -hmm. the reality is that we are always looking for opportunities to embed DEI sensibilities mm -hmm. into our systems. And the example, you know, I, I would like to share is an intersection between uh, DEI behaviors, mm -hmm. our leadership pillars, and HUMU. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Because a couple of our leadership pillars, one is build uh, strong teams mm -hmm. and another is uniting purpose. And mm -hmm. to achieve this, you need to display DI behaviors such as the psychological safety that Laszlo was talking about right. or listening with empathy or considering diverse uh, perspectives to influence a sense of, of belonging. So... Humu is helping us to influence this work because uh, it is sending not just to leaders so mm -hmm. they can be mindful practicing these behaviors and together we can, you know, drive our collective progress and have a transformational change. Yeah, that's really a great insight about having to think about this whole thing as a, a systems approach to be able to make real meaningful progress and to be able to, you know, actually get to that kind of culture that we're all looking for. So um, thank you so much. Those were great insights. I know we, there's so much more that we could talk about, but mm -hmm. I think this gives us a few things to think about and take mm -hmm. away from the conversation. <laughs> so thanks for joining me today, Isabel. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for being here with us today. And if you enjoyed this conversation, would you rate or review it so more people can find it? And also visit us at steelcase.com research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research, insights, and design ideas delivered to your inbox. Rebecca, any final thoughts today? Of course. We want to let everyone know that if they missed any episodes over this season or last season, there's a lot of great conversations out there live, and we'd love to hear which one resonated with you most. So share your favorite episode with a friend and always let us know what you think. Thanks again for being here. And we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better podcasts possible. Our creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison, editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios, technical support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez, and our digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.